Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And my name is Franz Borsha. And today we're joined by Professor Carol Popper from Imperial College London. Carol is a professor of economics and her research focuses on the design and consequences of incentives within the public sector and the boundary between the state and private markets with a particular focus on the healthcare system. Welcome, Carol. Pleasure to be here. So in this series of Policy Matters, we've been talking to economists about a range of different topics, each of which we might not immediately think of as being anything to do with economics. And today is no different. When we think about healthcare and the NHS, the Department of Health, etc., we probably think about doctors and nurses, surgeons, that sort of thing, but economists are going to be way down that list. So, Carol, can you just tell us uh, what are the ways in which economists can and are making a contribution to our health? Well, um, even though not many people think about it, economists play quite a big role in thinking about healthcare. To start with, we fund healthcare publicly in the UK and in many systems. So economists are involved in thinking about what the best level of funding is for healthcare and how you split that funding between what comes out of people's own pockets and between the state. I mean, a fairly kind of standard kind of tax approach to healthcare, which is a fairly standard approach that you take to any public services. But then within that... Um, You might think about economists being involved in whether you should fund a particular drug to be used in the public sector. And there's a big role for economists um, in that in Britain. And Britain really led the way in using economists to look at new drugs and work out whether they were cost effective for the state to use. So I think most people might think about economists being involved like that, economists as accountants, essentially. But more broadly, you might think about economists being involved because economists are interested in how people respond to incentives. And in the public sector, there are lots of different incentives for people going on. And that's what a lot of economists who study healthcare are interested in. Yeah, that fits with some of the things we've been hearing from other uh, economists we've been talking to in this series about how really what we're interested in is how people behave, uh, given the incentives that they face and the kind of constraints that they're operating under. And then, I guess, taking that on from a policy perspective, thinking about, in light of that, how do we design the best system, given what we know about how people are going to respond? Uh, and I guess this would apply to like the healthcare system as much as it would to education or to crime. Yeah, it does. And it's really important because if you think about healthcare, 70% of the costs of healthcare are staff. The NHS employs 1.2 million people. And there are a lot of incentives going on within that 1.2 million people. You do lots of things with those people. They're really important in producing healthcare and how they respond to those various incentives that face them really affects the healthcare produced and more importantly, patient care and patient outcomes. So you've mentioned something that I was going to bring up a little bit before we delve into your research. Healthcare is important. It employs a lot of people. It consumes a very big portion of the UK budget. Um, That's just the raw numbers. In fact, even if you look at people's sort of uh, search behavior, I was looking at Google Trends the other day just to see how education ranks up to these kind of common topics such as police or education. And education is actually twice as much searched as police, which then again is twice as much searched as education. So from a societal point of view, healthcare is obviously very important. I was just wondering, sort of perhaps naively, 
uh, healthcare is always in the news in a sort of negative way, or at least I often perceive it to be that way. We're talking about waiting lists, we're talking about access to GPs and all that kind of stuff. And often there's a comparison to other countries, that somehow they're better, there's league tables. Before we go into some of the research, I thought, what is your opinion of the present UK healthcare system? Is, is it that bad as people make it out to be? <laughs> That's a hundred dollar question <laughs> or a million dollar question if there ever was one. I mean, there are lots of international rankings of healthcare systems. And on some of them, the UK NHS comes out well. And on some of them, it comes out less well. So where it comes out well is that because it's tax funded, People don't have to worry about finding the money for their care or at least finding large amounts of money for their care at the point when they most need care. And that's obviously really important to people. You know, in Britain, when people think about changing the way that we fund healthcare, that clearly produces major upsets in the paper and major upsets everywhere on social media. People are very concerned that we fund healthcare through the tax system. And there are a lot of good reasons for doing that. So because the UK does fund their healthcare through the tax system, it comes out well on those kind of league tables. However, because it funds it out of the tax system, that means that the, maybe the pot for funding is rather smaller than in systems which have more private funding. I mean, that's clearly the case if you compare healthcare funding in the UK to healthcare funding in the US or healthcare funding somewhere like Switzerland or even the Netherlands where people make bigger contributions themselves. Mm. So that means that the NHS might spend less money than you'd ideally want on some services because it's capped by the amount of tax funding and people's willingness to pay for taxes. And I think the NHS also comes out not so well when you look at things that are very high profile, like cancer care. So there's been quite a lot about the UK not doing as well on cancer care as some of our European rivals. And indeed, we spent a lot of money to try and catch up. And indeed, we have been successful. Like, for example, it was announced that cancer care for women with breast cancer is now as good in Britain as the rest of Europe. But it's taken something like 10 years of sustained money to get that. And I think it's partly just not having the money means that if you don't have as much money as other systems, you can't move as fast in all areas as those other systems. It sounds like the right place where economists might want to have a play around. Yeah, I think, I, I guess, like you say, given the amount of money that goes into the system and the various kind of incentives at play and the fact that you've got to cover so many people and so many different um, potential health conditions, etc., is I can see how economists could make a real difference, um, particularly in the way that things are, are structured, the way that the system is, is delivered. And just to kind of move on to think about some of your research that you've done in the past, you've got some papers that have been kind of international award-winning papers that have looked at kind of the way the NHS works. Uh, one of them, Can Pay Regulation Kill? Another one, Death by Market Power? Um, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm getting a bit of a theme here. Um, so can you just tell us um, what made you think there might be a link between kind of pay and death? And is it is it the case that, like, regulating pay of, of people in the NHS leads to this kind of bad unintended consequence? Yeah, well, that's a nice question. So I started on the work 
that eventually was called Campay Regulation Kill. When the NHS first published what they called star ratings about their hospitals, that was a long time ago, and when you looked at the star ratings, what you saw was that the star ratings were highest in the north of England. Now, when you think about the health of the population in the north of England, the health of the population is actually worse in the north of England. We know that there are long-standing inequalities in health outcomes. But somehow the health care was rated as better in the north of England. And that set me to thinking about why this should be. It can't be to do with the fact that people are easier to treat because we know they're generally less healthy. They've worked in more difficult jobs. There are long-standing problems. So that made me think that there must be something about the labour market in those areas. And that led to the thought that what happens in the NHS, as in many public sector providers, is that wages are regulated and they're regulated at a national level by a national body. So what happens with pay for the armed forces or pay for the NHS or pay in education is there are pay review bodies that essentially set national scales. Now those, that's done for reasons of fairness. It's argued that the job of a nurse in Cornwall is exactly the same as a job of the nurse on the same pay band in London. Mm. But in fact, what happens is that it costs a lot more for someone to live in London or more broadly the southeast than it does in Cornwall. And there are pay uplifts that are supposed to reflect that, but they never are large enough. So, so that's it, like the London waiting. It's like the London waiting for teachers, if you're yeah. familiar with that. It's clearly not enough. This it, is a comment there. <laughs> <laughs> that's not comment. Not enough. It's clearly not enough. Clearly, <clears throat> house prices in London are much, much higher and in the southeast than they are, for example, in rural areas or in Cumbria. So that made me think, well, perhaps what's going on is the problem is the labour market in the southeast means that there's a lot of turnover, that turnover is costly, that turnover demoralises people. Perhaps that's what's going on. So that's what we looked at. We looked at whether the fact that the national pay regulations means that pay is essentially too little for people in high-cost areas means that that has a bad outcome for patients, and that's what we tested. So we call it did pay regulation kill because we looked at whether there were more people who died when they shouldn't have died from heart attacks in areas like London and the southeast and found there were and that was a direct consequence of pay regulation. What would be sort of the transmission mechanism there? Is that because in London you will end up with, in quotation marks, lower quality nurses because they have outside office, the high quality ones will take jobs in the private sector, for example? It's not so much the private sector. What ha tends to happen is that people train in the southeast, but then when they come to think about more long-term plans, they often move out. So I think it's a number of factors. We looked at a number of things in this research, but that wasn't the direct the direct aim of this research was to see whether there was any relationship, not to answer the question why there was this relationship. I think one of the reasons is there's a higher turnover of nurses. And because it's more expensive to live, nurses often moonlight, if you like. They work in two jobs or they work partly in the private sector or they work doing what's called bank work. So they're doing a lot of work, which means that you can make mistakes on the job because you're tired. 
It also means that you need to employ more agency nurses. Now, agency nurses are very expensive, so people don't want to spend a lot of money on agency nurses. And an agency nurse may not be as familiar with a ward or a work setting as someone who works there all the time. So if you've got an organisation in which there's a lot of agency nurses being used, that doesn't necessarily lead to good outcomes. It's not that the agency nurses are poor nurses. It's that they're not familiar with the environments that they're working in. They may often be called in at very short notice um, because there's more pressure on staff. So it's generally that there's much more pressure on staff, I think, in an already pressurised situation where you have trouble finding staff. And we know that turnover is much higher in high-wage areas. So this is actually something that I'm going back to look at now right. after 10 years to see if we're doing any better. I hope so, because that work was quite widely disseminated and hopefully organisations within the NHS will have been able to get a better grip on that. Um, could uh, I mean, do we know, have they been able to respond in any way? Are they restricted by these national pay review bodies? Because it seems like an obvious policy response would be, OK, we need to up that London waiting, we need to do something to try and provide more continuity of, of nursing care in particular. I think the pay review bodies are aware of these problems and they do change their uplifts from time to time. But it's also that I think one of the things is that policymakers are more aware of the costs that this kind of churn and imposes and are trying to help trusts in the NHS, the NHS bodies that deliver care, to try and reduce that churn, use agency nurses more carefully, use other schemes to encourage their own nurses, to essentially give more pay to their own nurses. And just thinking about, like, as an outcome, death seems, it's quite binary, it's quite a kind of um, extreme outcome. Um, but is this because it's just, it's difficult to measure other outcomes what's the the issue of obviously in healthcare there are loads and loads of outcomes mm. there's lots and lots of aspects of what quality of care is so one of the things that researchers do look at is something as stark as death partly because you can't game it if you're you know when you're trying to look at what's measured sometimes there's this adage that you know what's measured is done and what's not measured is not done where you can't game the system and pretend you had fewer deaths than you actually had because these are recorded publicly so that's one of the reasons that researchers in this area look at death the other reason is actually much more prosaic which is that at the time we were looking at this question, not many quality measures were published and we wanted to use published metrics to make sure that we weren't making any errors. And death rates are one of the things that obviously the population cares about. It matters whether you enter a hospital uh, alive and leave yeah. alive that's, as well. Yeah, that's not the outcome anymore. <laughs> Anyone wants to, to go in and, and come out kind of feet first. Um, uh, indeed not. So, so the other paper I was going to ask about the death by market power again, again with death being the outcome, but we understand why. But with the market power, so uh, we hear about the role of competition in the NHS. Uh, the NHS, obviously, as we've talked about, we've got a national. The clues in the name, I guess, the National Health Service. We've got a kind of uh, a monopoly in a sense that the government provides uh, pays for the healthcare at the point of use. Uh, so it's free, free at the point of use for everybody. But we want to have some competition and this kind of this idea of the market so what 
how did this kind of death by market power, what did you discover there? Well, let me step back a bit. So, you know, when you're thinking about, we started the conversation thinking about big picture reforms that you do to public services. And one of the stories of public sector reform over the last 20 to 25 years in Britain and indeed worldwide has that you can increase your productivity in delivering public services by injecting competition where there was none, rather than using a single monopoly supplier to inject competition. You can see that in a whole range of industries. It started off in what's called the regulated industries like water and utilities and railways. But then it moved into thinking about public service delivery. And you can think about the kind of political appeal of this, that these are typically fairly low productivity growth sectors. One way of injecting dynamism into the economy generally is to have competition. We know that economies which are more competitive tend to be more productive, have higher GDP growth. Okay, why not apply that to public services? So this has been a model that's been running for some time. And my research has been interested in, can you use competition in heavily regulated European healthcare sectors where we regulate heavily because we care that people get access to healthcare and where we also provide a lot of the finance from the public purse? Because I guess the extreme example would be the US where you have a lot of competition in healthcare providers and hospitals, like the full, the full range, but you don't have that regulation of well you don't have that kind of sense of right we need everybody to be covered to a certain degree because we care about the health of the nation i mean actually the u.s is one example but actually many countries which are not part of the oecd have systems in which there's a lot of competition and in which people aren't fully covered so across the world the norm is not really the European fully covered kind mm. of model. Though as people grow and as economies grow, people move towards that. So, there, however, there are a clutch of very heavily regulated, highly taxed finance system. And even the US has 40% of its finance for healthcare provided by the state, interestingly. So the question is, yes, can you introduce competition in those systems and what happens now? It happens that the UK has been one of the places that has experimented most with competition. Margaret Thatcher started it um, in wanting to liberate, as I was saying earlier, utilities. But she moved in the 1990s to thinking about using the same models in healthcare. So a long-term interest of mine has been, does competition work in those settings? Can you use competition to try and promote better outcomes in healthcare? So the paper where I was looking at, does pay regulation kill, was one aspect of that. But the paper on death by market power asks the question, does competition, if you introduce it through policy, have a good impact on outcomes in healthcare. And it sounds like it, it does. I want to know the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm waiting. <laughs> that was a very long answer yeah. to this. The answer is, in fact, in this case, it does appear that hospitals which are more exposed to competition from their neighbours do produce better outcomes. In other words, being a monopoly in this market, just as many other markets, is not a good thing for the end consumer. So what kind of competition are we talking about in this particular case? Is this related to choice or 
performance related pay or you know if the patient dies for not paying you that kind of thing it's mainly related to two things first of all trying to introduce more patient choice partly where that patient choice may be helped for patients by going to their GP and being advised on where they might go. So the first aspect of it is allowing patients to choose the hospitals for which they go to for care. That's become much more routine, but uh, prior to about 2006, this was not something that people did. The second thing has been changing the payment systems so that you essentially pay hospitals for the activity that they do rather than just giving them a block amount of funding to spend as they wish. So the money they receive is related to the activities they do. You put those two things together and you begin to inject competition into the market. Do you think, I'm just sort of taking this a little bit further and from our own sector, the education sector, where Matt and I, oh, and of course yourself, <laughs> you're there too, excuse me. <laughs> you know, we've been exposed to this like, concept of, you know, university league tables for, for eons now. And uh, for better or for worse, they do play an important uh, part in our professional lives. Um, is this something that we're moving towards with the NHS? And is this something that you think is the right direction, given your prior research? I think we have moved. It isn't a moving (laughs) to. The NHS has been one of the world leaders in publishing data on performance of hospitals. In fact, one of the reasons so much work has been done academically in Britain, or particularly in England, is because the government has been so much a leader in publishing data on various aspects of quality of care for patients, introducing websites, making choice. It's part of making choice easier. You can't make choices easily if you don't know anything about the good, essentially, that you're buying. So the UK has been a leader in that, and we've been at it since essentially the late 90s. So along with the US, we're probably one of the places that publishes most data about the performance of all aspects of our healthcare system as part of our commitment to patient choice. Is there a danger with these kind of elements that, so you have the league table that gives us information about performance and you have the funding where hospitals get paid according to what they actually do. Is there a kind of unintended consequence perhaps of I'm a hospital, I just decide, okay, we're going to choose these people who are generally more healthy and we're going to do stuff for them that is is quite easy to do and that's going to maximise our payment rather than there's some people over there who are quite, you know, not a a good health profile. If they come in, they're going to die and we're not going to get any money. Is there, you know, a danger that within our universal coverage system there's picking and choosing and and that sort of thing? Um Economists have a very gloomy view about the rest of the world, really. And that's the sort of typical economist thought about (laughs) any of these systems. And you're quite right, Matt. You know, it does go on. Whenever you have these kind of performance metrics, there are always uh, ways of gaming them. And in the healthcare sector, one of the ways of gaming them is trying not to treat people who will look bad in terms of your stats. That often means something lovelily called in the sector dumping, creaming, and (laughs) skimping. So this means that you try and get rid of the patients that you don't really want. You, You cream, you try and select those patients that are less likely to be costly or are more likely to give you better outcomes. And you skimp 
by undertreating patients who are expensive to treat and are not going to help you. Now, this happens both on the insurance side in the US, where insurance companies don't want to take on high-risk people, and it can happen on the provision side, where people who are very subject to league tables and other things try to manipulate who they treat. In fact, in the UK, there is there is much less evidence in healthcare of this going on. Okay. Um, there doesn't seem to be a vast amount of dumping, creaming and skimping going on in the UK. Most studies have not shown that. However, I think it's perfectly clear that when there's a target that's easy to respond to, people will. And a nice example of that is waiting list targets. Yeah. When waiting list targets were first introduced, many hospitals had very sharp drops in those waiting times targets. Uh, many people appeared to be treated. When researchers went back and looked at this, essentially what hospitals were doing was getting rid of the dead from their waiting lists. So there were people who'd waited so long that they died in the interim okay. and hospitals basically were taking a good look at their waiting lists and getting rid of them. However, after that initial first drop, <laughs> they then couldn't do that again. But oh, there certainly shot. was a yeah. one-shot, very fast response <laughs> yeah. to waiting times targets. And I guess the, the other thing is that you hear about, okay, there's a waiting time target that's been incentivized, and so what you get a kind of a waiting list to get onto the waiting list and so you kind of that sort of is that the sort of gaming as well that goes on well interestingly we did some work we i mean this is as you say this is the bread and butter of gloomy economics life we're always worried about responses bad responses to incentives as are many social scientists so i did some work with some colleagues at bristol looking to see whether waiting times targets for elective care caused hospitals to essentially undertreat some patients. In fact, we found, so what happened was we compared England that had waiting times targets with Scotland that did not. Scotland had decided they didn't want waiting times targets. What we actually found was that in England, the waiting times targets did not influence the type of patients selected and didn't seem to have bad outcomes. What happened in Scotland that didn't have waiting times targets is they began, they essentially put people on a secret list. And once people, for example, turned down an appointment because they were going to go on a holiday, they didn't appear on the main list. So it looked as if the Scottish system was really meeting the targets that nobody thought they ought to be meeting or ought to be worrying about, whereas the English system didn't have that problem. Hmm. So yes, people do go on secret lists and there's evidence that that was happening in Scotland where they were arguing that they didn't need any waiting times targets. Well, I guess if you've got everyone on a secret list, <laughs> then you don't need the target. Exactly. Um, that sounds I, like my GP. Going back to something you mentioned earlier at the start about inequality, um, I'm curious about sort of socioeconomic inequalities in the healthcare system. I mean, you know, most economists are aware that in various sectors, uh, such as education and health and whatnot, there are gradients, socioeconomic gradients. So what's the picture like for the UK? Are richer people generally a lot healthier? And is it just because they can afford private health care? Richer people are healthier, but it's not because they can afford private health care. Health is a product of many things, many of which are nothing to do with health care. They're to do with your genetics, your childhood, your access to diets, the kind of work you do, the stress you're under, 
there are many determinants of health that have absolutely nothing to do with your health care. Imagine if you live in an area with very high pollution, it's very likely your children will suffer from asthma much more than if you live in an affluent area. So I think we start with a population in which health, the underlying health, is socially graded. And that's nothing really to do with healthcare. And then we ask a healthcare system to try and mitigate some of those gradations. So when you actually look at do people get worse healthcare from the NHS according to their socioeconomic status, the evidence is much more mixed about that. In some areas, no. In other areas, yes. But in other areas, where the answer is yes, the answer may not be due to the health service, but due to the fact that people present later. So, for example, mm -hmm. there are social gradients in, for example, survival rates from cancer. Some of that simply comes because people of lower socioeconomic status may present to their doctors later, may be listened to by their doctors a bit less, may be less able to attend appointments because they've got other pressures on their lives. There's a whole kind of mixture of reasons. But when you actually look at how the NHS performs, it probably comes out quite well in terms of giving people equal access once they've asked for it or once they've sought it. So the issue is partly actually that there are gradients in seeking care in the first place. And there may also be gradients in complying with that care. It's a damn sight easier to take off time from work if you're in a job like you or I are mm. than if you're in a job where you're working shifts or you're juggling two jobs or you're on zero hours contracts. So it's a very complicated issue. But clearly there are inequalities in health and there are probably smaller inequalities in healthcare delivered relative to socioeconomic status. That's good news. Why, why don't we see this in the media? Yeah, well, I guess it's one of those stories. Good news stories don't tend to make so much of a, uh, a noise in the media. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about the NHS and the design of the system, the kind of bringing competition and some of those competitive pressures to try and improve efficiency and productivity. And we're trying to do a lots of different things. We're going to cover people. We're trying to make sure that there aren't these kind of socioeconomic gradients in healthcare provision. So if you bring it back to policy, we say um, Franz and I take over the country, which, you know, there may be a vacancy uh, at some point, And we give Matt Hancock the boot from the Department for Health and uh, Social Care. We put Carol Proper in charge. I mean, how do you think this competition and the way the NHS is set up is this uh, something you would look to continue or expand? Or what do you think? Uh, do you think it's doing a pretty good job? What, what would be your kind of first move or general direction if we put you in that job? I think my first move would be to essentially do something rather sort of nerdish. And what I'd like to do nerdishly is we have great data in the UK, great data which we can use to analyse what's going on. But we don't use it very well because of fears around privacy and access to individuals' personal data. I would like us to be able to link our administrative data sets so we could really mine them with the kind of deep data mining, big data analytics, so that we could bring those tools to looking at how the health service functions. We've got 
data on 1.2 million employees. We've got data on almost everything that's done in the NHS. What we haven't got is the ability to exploit it, except on a very small local level. So I, as Secretary of State, would do something that I think that many Secretaries of State have been interested in, which is trying to join all that data up. But then, of course, I'm a data nerd, so that I would start there. <laughs> Given that, I would also try and minimise the amount of change that's been in the service. One of the things that you see in healthcare policy is that every Secretary of State wants their own new shiny policy. Mm. That's really tough for the people who are working to deliver care. And I think I'd like a nice, quiet life for everybody. And basically, business as usual, continue with pro-competitive and pro-choice policies as we have them, and try and have as little disruption to the service as possible whilst we worked on trying to meet the many targets and goals that are already there. Now, that sounds very boring, but I think it would give everybody a boost not to be involved. I guess as a last question, sort of personally, uh, research-wise, what are you most interested in uh, researching in the coming months and years? You mentioned big data. Matt and I are actually quite interested in big data ourselves. We are working a lot in the education side of things. Um, do you have any themes in mind already? I do. I have several themes in mind. The first is I'm really wanting to return to what I looked at in pay regulation kills paper and I'm interested in looking at the records that the NHS has on employees to understand really how pay regulation affects all sorts of decisions, decisions around where people train, decisions about what kind of specialties they go into, decisions about turnover rates, how long they stay. Obviously, this is incredibly pertinent with Brexit happening, and we know we rely very heavily in the UK on EU staff. So I'm very interested in staffing matters and returning to really understanding how staff and how the use of staff affects the quality and volume of healthcare that we produce. It's been really uh, fascinating talking to you, Carol. Thank you very much for coming in. A pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Bouchard. And we'll be back with more soon.